So just a few uh, words of introduction before we start. And this is, I want to uh, just visit this idea of the name Israel, because that, that one has a little bit of freight that sometimes it's useful to, uh, to unpack. One use of the word Israel is the name for Jacob. Remember, Jacob's name was changed from Jacob to Israel, and it means the people who struggle with God. It was after Jacob had been wrestling uh, at, you know, wrestling with God, actually. But then it became the name of all of the descendants of Jacob. They were collectively known as the people of Jacob or the people of Israel. And so we think of that as the people of Israel were in Egypt, and then the people of Israel came out of Egypt and wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And then the people of Israel settled in the promised land, and that was called Israel. And it was ruled by judges and people like that and prophets. Uh, and, but the problem is you get to a certain point in history where Israel doesn't describe all of the people of Israel. It only describes some of the people, most of the people of Israel. That's when we have what's called a divided kingdom. That's when Israel is almost all the tribes except for Judah and maybe Benjamin, okay? That's when we actually have two kingdoms, the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. And, and so Israel is just kind of, I'm always trying to clarify which Israel we mean. And today, we're going to mean the second Israel, the, the one that's basically 10 other tribes besides the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. Those all get reunited under King David and under King Solomon, and then it was, it's called Israel again. But after Solomon, it gets divided again, and it becomes Israel and Judah, and it stays that way for a very long time. And then Israel is actually taken off into exile by the Assyrians, and they practically cease to exist. And Judah stays on for a few hundred years, but they eventually get taken captive by the Babylonians. Uh, pardon me, yes, the Babylonians. And, uh, but they come back. And then that becomes called Israel. Is that confusing? Well, it is, yeah. But we mean Israel today. We're talking about the 10 or so tribes that are not aligned with David yet. So that's kind of an explanation. When we talk about Israel, you sometimes have to ask yourself, the 10 tribes of Israel or the whole, all the descendants of Jacob? And so... Um, Saul had been king over all of Israel, all of the descendants of Jacob. Um, and um, he had a son, just a little background here before we get to this. He had a son whose name was Ishbosheth. And uh, you can imagine he got picked on at school with a name like that. Ishbosheth, or his name was actually before that, his name was Ishbaal. But there was a time in the history of Israel, and Hosea records this, where God says, you shall not call me by that name anymore or call your children really by that name anymore. You, shan't, you shouldn't use that word anymore because that word Baal, which really means master or Lord, came to be associated with a Canaanite false god named Baal. But that word just means master. But it became more of a proper noun, and it became the name of this false god. So all the people whose name actually had the word Baal in it were renamed by later generations writing the Bible to, uh, instead of Ish-Baal, it was Ish-Bosheth. And Bosheth actually means shame. So every time it was on, they had in the word processor, like, search and replace. Every Baal replaced with uh, Bosheth, which means shame. Ready? Replace all? Yes or no? There's 500 occurrences of this. Do you really want to change all of this in the Bible? Yes. And so Baal got replaced by Bosheth. And it was also that, what a shame, 
that somebody had been named after this word that had fallen out of, of use. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that fascinating? So Ishbosheth or Ishbaal was the son of Saul, and he was the son that avoided the slaughter at Mount Gilboa that we heard about last week. And it turns out that Israel, the other ten tribes, decided to make Ishbosheth their king, not David. Why? Because he was the son of Saul. This is a problem, though. Remember a few weeks we talked about the queen bee? There can only be one queen. Well, there can only be one king. But still, there's two kings. There's two anointed kings of Israel, Saul and David. David is fighting Saul. And now Saul's son has been anointed king by, not by God, not by the Lord, but by all the elders of the tribes of Israel, the other ten tribes. And so this is still a problem for David. And that actually lasts for about six and a half years. Seven and a half years, I think. We'll see in just a second. And so... Um, David is nowhere closer to being king over all of Israel when Saul dies because Saul's son becomes king and they begin to wage a war with each other. There's a really kind of a strange and, and sadly hilarious story in there about how the, the, some of the soldiers of Ishbosheth and some of the soldiers of David met each other at a lake or at a brook. And they said, let's have 12 men from each of our armies just fight each other. And if one side wins, then we'll consider that side the winner. It's just kind of like David and Goliath fighting the Philistines, you know. Um, and so it says that these men all grabbed each other with one hand and had a, a sword in the other hand, and all 12 were ready like that. And somebody said, go, and they all stabbed each other at the exact same moment, and they all died. So that, that didn't solve anything, you know. Isn't that, it's all these great stories from the Old Testament, you know. Can you imagine all these, like, go, 24 people just fall over dead. Like, isn't that a little comedic? No? Yes, Craig? A little bit? In a Monty Python kind of way, it's just kind of like, and here's how we fight our battles. Oh, that didn't work. No? Okay, next. We'll try something else. So then they said, I guess we're still at war. Um, Ishbosheth had a general named Abner. He was a, quite a great fighting man. He saw which way the wind was blowing. He defected over to David's side. Ishbosheth became very scared of what was going to happen next. But before he could even abdicate, some of, his, some of his people came and assassinated him. That leads us to where we are here, where the, the line of Saul is pretty much gone, and the ten tribes of Israel and their leaders decide that it is indeed time to make David their king over all of, now all of Israel, the United Kingdom. So let's take a look at that. That's our reading from today, 2 Samuel 5, 1 through 5 and 9 through 10. Okay, chapter 5. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Paul, uh, Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a compact or a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed King David king over Israel, all Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. 
In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. That's Jerusalem. He built up the area around it from the supporting terraces inward. And he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And we ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, so now we see where things are headed with David. Finally, after all the years of fighting Saul, after seven and a half years, basically, of fighting Ishbosheth and ruling in Judea, a little town called Hebron, which is southeast of, uh, southwest of Jerusalem by about 30 or 40 miles or so, he finally becomes king over all of the people of God. And this is a long time coming. And you could say after all this bloodshed, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago, that a lot of this could have been avoided were it not for Saul. He could have made David his successor. David had already married one of his daughters. He was the king's son-in-law. Samuel had anointed him as king over Israel. So Saul had a path towards a peaceful resolution of this problem of implementing God's will in a nonviolent way, but Saul did not choose it. And so a lot of bloodshed ensued, not just the 24 people who fell over dead in one day, but all sorts of other people died because of that. So finally, though, David became king over um, all of Israel. And so one of the things that I think we can draw from this is that God has these plans for his people where he anoints just a young man, like a teenager, really. He anoints a young man, David, to become king over all of Israel, but it doesn't happen right away, does it? It doesn't happen right away at all. There's a lot of work that has to come first. You know, David has to do a lot of things. He has to endure a lot. And so it wasn't easy to get the kingdom away from Saul, um, and that's one of the consequences of having a king, where you have to be careful what you ask for. Because the king can hold on to power. They don't give it up lightly. They control the military. They control a lot of the systems of the government. So they can do the things that are needed, build loyalties, make alliances, so that it's very hard to get rid of them. And um, when you have the king has children, those children have claims on the throne. And Ishbosheth had a claim on the throne. He exercised his claim. And he led the ten tribes of Israel really astray away from the will of God, and that had to be settled after years of war. So the other thing is that the work isn't even over yet for David. He takes over Jerusalem. That's a different story. How he takes is very interesting. He takes over Jerusalem. He makes it his capital. He makes it his city. Uh, he sets about sort of renovating the city, making it more fortified, more secure, which is a good thing. And you can go there, and you can see it's called the Ophel. It's or the city of David, and it's not the old, what we see as the modern Jerusalem now, or the ancient, the Roman Jerusalem, but it's down the hillside just a little bit is a walled area, and there's a lot of archaeological digs going on there now, and that stuff is like 3,000 years old, because this is about 1,000 B.C. when David takes over Jerusalem. But it's not all easy going, because he still has some it's mopping up, to do, and that's a terrible way to say this, but the way things were back then is 
he had to go and find all of Saul's sons were dead. Ishbosheth was the last son to, li to live, but Saul had many grandchildren left. And this breaks my heart to say it, but David had to go and find all those people too. And he had to get rid of them, except for one, whose name is Mephibosheth. We can talk about him some other day. That's a very beautiful story of grace, this story of Mephibosheth. He is spared. But all the other grandchildren of Saul, who also have a claim, a rival claim to David's, have to be dealt with in some way. And some of them are killed by the Gibeonites. So they're killed by some other people. And David doesn't really directly have, quite have a hand in that. So, but nonetheless, David had to solidify his, despite what God had done to make him king, David had to make the military and political moves necessary to solidify his rule. Isn't that horrible? This is the price of being, being and having a king, is they have to do these things. And so David does this. And this is one of the reasons, I believe, why when David says to the Lord, you live in a tent, I need to build you a house, a temple. And God says, you may not build me this temple because you have shed too much blood, too much. Those hands cannot build this temple. It'll go to your son Solomon. He will build me the temple. First Chronicles 28.3 talks about that conversation between God and David. So David takes Jerusalem, and he rules there for 33 years, which is a, a long time. And in those years, as we know, he has some ups and downs. He has a really nice view from the palace, but it's, that does, becomes his undoing, doesn't it? There's wars won, wars lost, and it wasn't even easy in David's own family. Solomon became king after him. He was a wonderful king up until a certain point when he started taking on all sorts of foreign wives and worshiping their gods with them. But yet, this, the land prospered. He did build the temple. But even David's children fought with each other for the rule of the country. So this golden period in, in Israel's history didn't even last that long. So one of the questions I ask myself when I read this, because you could read this about David taking Jerusalem and reigning there for 33 years, and then he passes on the kingdom to his son Solomon, who is wise, you know, all this. It sounds like, oh, they've arrived. God's people have finally figured it out. They've really gotten to a good place here, right? But you read about it, and it's, it's not like that at all. It's built on blood. His own children fight with each other. And we have to start saying Israel and Judah again after Solomon because the kingdom gets divided again and it stays divided until one part of it is wiped out. So what is God up to? Does he ever let his people ever arrive anywhere? Do you, you see what I'm saying? Like, do they ever really finish any of their work? And that's the challenge, I think, of this passage for me is that God has a plan, but it's a bit murky. He lets David take Jerusalem. He lets David become the king of a unified people. But yet all this misery has already happened, and all this misery is yet to happen. But God has a plan through it. And this is kind of the message, is that God's plan keeps working, even though the actors in this plan 
are fallible and broken human beings, and they make a lot of mistakes, and a lot of bad things happen along the way. So let me tell you a little bit about Jerusalem, because this is really about Jerusalem in a way. David makes a capital for himself, and he sets about developing it. He sets about fortifying it. And Jerusalem itself, um, it became the place of the temple, as we said. It defended itself pretty well from the Babylonian Empire. When the northern kingdom got taken away in 722 B.C., Judea stayed intact. They were besieged, but Jerusalem never really fell at that point. So those fortifications held up, which is good news. You know, he, he built enough of a city that it could withstand. However, the Assyrians came back in 586 B.C., and then Jerusalem fell to them, and they were taken off to... Um, I have that backwards. I'm sorry. The Assyrians attacked in the 8th century. I have this in my notes wrong. And the Babylonians came in 586 B.C., and the people of God went off to Babylon as captives. And Jerusalem, look at the history of Jerusalem. If you go to Jerusalem now, there's a the place that tells you about all the different groups that have occupied Jerusalem in the last 3,000 years, 18 different civilizations have conquered that strip of land. 18. Back and forth, the Philistines and the, 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 everybody, the Egyptians, everybody, you know, back and forth. So here's just a list. The Assyrians, after the Babylonians, uh, the Assyrians tried, but they failed. The Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans... And then even the Nabataeans. Have you heard of the Nabataeans? King Herod the Great was half Nabataean. These were a people group who lived in Edom, which was kind of where Syria is now, or I mean where, um, where Jordan is now, right over the Jordan River. King Herod was one of them, and he insinuated himself into the royal family and began, became the ruler of, of Israel. So Jerusalem got conquered like four or five more times after David. But here's the great thing. This is up until the time of Jesus. As a result of all these invasions and rebuildings and investments that were made by King Herod, by the time of Jesus, Jerusalem had become a very cosmopolitan and important city in the Roman Empire. We don't often think of that, but that's really true. It, was one of, it, it had in it the temple, which turns out was one of the wonders of the ancient Roman world. The reason we don't hear that very much is because it was also destroyed by the Romans. They kind of regretted it. They were, it was built to appease the Jews. It was built because Herod was such a good political maneuverer that he had ingratiated himself with the emperor. And so a lot of money headed towards Jerusalem for the building of this massive temple and all the, all the plaza around it. It was really one of the wonders in terms of workmanship and effort and energy and expense of the Roman world. And so by the time of Jesus, Jerusalem was this amazing place. It was the crossroads of all sorts of civilizations. And I think that was God's plan. I think that was God's plan. Because it's from Jerusalem that the gospel spread like wildfire on the day of Pentecost. Think about it. If David hadn't taken Jerusalem, if God had not given him victory that day, if David hadn't developed it, if, if it hadn't been invaded by the Greeks and by the Romans, and the Romans hadn't built all these roads around it, right? Then it would have been harder for all these people to show up on Pentecost and hear the apostles preach the gospel to them. 
And they instantly went back to their homelands and they spread the gospel. There's probably no faster dissemination of a message than that than happened on that day in the ancient world. Now you could put it on Facebook and it would go everywhere, right? That's great. They didn't, obviously, they didn't have that. But the spread from Pentecost to the known Roman world and beyond the Roman world to the east was astounding. And that gospel spread back through seaways that had been pioneered by the Romans and the Greeks, through Roman roads across overland hills. It's amazing what God had in store for Jerusalem. People hearing the gospel in their own language, going back to their homes. And that kind of leads us to our next point, is that God uses all sorts of circumstances to do what he wants in the world. He gave Jerusalem to David, but it wasn't easy. And it didn't last long as the capital of the United Kingdom. It didn't last long at all. But it was a place where the temple could be built. It was a place where God's people would gather. And so we have a story about David. He establishes a United Kingdom. He makes mistakes. His children make mistakes. Some of them rebel against him. One generation later, the land is divided. And we go back, again, like I said, to differentiating between Israel and Judah Foreign powers come and conquer. The people go into exile. And the exile in Babylon, think about that. We think of that as a catastrophe. This is in keeping with all of what I've said so far. This is one of the most important things that happened to God's people. Do you believe that? The Babylonian captivity? Many of them didn't even survive the trip. It's horrible what happened to them. They, were mar- they had to walk there by foot. You know, <laughs> they didn't have a bunch of horses that they would loan the exiles. They had to walk. They had to walk hundreds of miles. But in, in exile in Babylon, it was one of the most fertile times for the faith of the people of Israel. I'm going to talk more about that later, but I want to read to you from Psalm 137, the first, the first part that's not so terrifying. Um, and here's how it goes, Psalm 137. It's a beautiful psalm. A psalm not written by David, a psalm not written by Solomon, it was written in Babylon hundreds of years after they lived. And this is how it goes. It says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. It was in Babylon that a huge amount of the Old Testament was finally gathered together and committed to writing. Before then, a lot of it had been an oral tradition. Praise God that oral traditions were so faithfully transmitted. But a lot of the writing of the Old Testament took place in Babylon. And that alone ensured the survival of Judaism. If even 20 people had that text, Judaism would survive. But far more than 20 people had it. Think about the people there. Longing for redemption, longing to go back to the city of David, longing to go back to Jerusalem. They want to go back home, but they're told while they're there to thrive and prosper 
and the time will come when they can go back, but they don't stop living. They continue to seek God, but they're always looking for their home. And so you have these beautiful hymns like uh, Psalm 137. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land if I forget you, O Jerusalem? And so they were always looking forward to going back, but they continue to live where they were. So they orient themselves towards God while they're in a foreign land. They're longing for redemption. They're longing for restoration. And they wait. And in time, in God's time, in God's purposes, he sends them back to the city of Jerusalem. They rebuild the walls. They start to rebuild the temple. Herod actually finishes the work, but they start to rebuild the temple. And God continues to use this conflict to bring about his purposes. So all throughout the history of Israel, there's always this return, this hopeful return to Jerusalem. So I would say for us that God knows that our lives are a bit like this too. This all has a purpose for us when we read this. That we don't always have victory, do we? We don't always have unity. We're held captive by many things, and there's rarely a time when the path to where God wants us to go is a straight line with no obstacles. Has anyone ever gotten where God wanted them to go, and it was just like, hey, I just arrived. That was easy. No hands going up? Okay, well, may, may you be blessed in that way, but it just doesn't happen that way because we, we get in the way of ourselves all the time, and God knows this. God knows. He knew this about Israel. He knew this about David. He knew this about Jerusalem. He knew his purposes for Jerusalem would always come about in his time that Jerusalem would serve as that place where the gospel would spread like wildfire throughout the world on the day of Pentecost. He had a plan for this place. It just involved fallen, broken people. But it didn't change how powerful God's plan was. And the same is true for us. We have faith that God has a plan that he will bring about his purposes in our lives. Do you have that faith? I mean, that could maybe console you a little bit when your tormentors say, sing to us a song about Zion. And you say, I'm going to hang up my harp because I can't sing about that place right now. But God will bring you there. Imagine now, I want you to imagine that you're in Babylon. But it's not really Babylon. I mean, that's Iraq now. Don't go there. Just avoid that place for now. But that you're in some other Babylon, some place of captivity, some place of waiting, some place of uncertainty, some place where many obstacles are in your way, but yet it could be a rich place for your faith, where you seek after God, where you bring his word into your heart, okay? So imagine you're in Babylon, that you're waiting, that you're crying as you hang your harp, that you're looking forward to being in your true home, but also that you're working to gather God's word in your heart. And now imagine that you have a Jerusalem, a place where God wants you to go, a place where God's purposes are going to come together for you. It's a place of unity. It's a place of peace, a place of wholeness, a place where God is near, where he speaks, where his presence dwells. And imagine that that Jerusalem will come. It will come someday. God wills it. And let's pray that it comes to you soon. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for this word.
Thank you for Jerusalem, all its ups and downs, for the purposes you brought about through it. Father, work in our lives. Work through us in our brokenness so that your will would come true through us. Amen.